Father, thank you for being good to us. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you in your um, infinite wisdom, you wrote down your will for us in the Bible. And then you gave it to us so in 2020 uh, we could know your will and we could know your thoughts, even thoughts about the future. We give you thanks tonight. You open our heart, open our mind, open our soul to receive what needs to be received. That which is from you, let it find good ground. And that which it's not, let it fly away. But God, I thank you when we leave, we leave stronger than we came. In Jesus' name, you say amen. amen. Let's jump right in. Revelation chapter 12, if you will. I want to just read again the whole chapter. And then we'll jump right in midstream. And only 18 verses long. Here we go. Revelation chapter 12. New Living Translation is the one I've chosen. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. She cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. And then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his head. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman, and she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years of the seven that we were talking about with the tribulation. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle. Come on, somebody. <laughs> gives me hope. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. And I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of the brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in heaven, rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has a little time. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like that, those of a great eagle, so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for, and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half time. That's three and a half years. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon <clears throat> was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Then the dragon and this is where we'll go next week, took his stand on the shore beside the sea. Here's where we land just to kind of keep up with what's going on. We said that the woman in this story, this was our teaching last week, is the nation of Israel. It's not just Mary, uh, although she did birth Jesus, but it was in reference to the whole nation of Israel 
that Satan himself has it in for the entire nation of Israel that birthed Jesus the king. And then the child, we said, is Jesus himself ruling with, over the nations with an iron scepter. And then we came to this thought that the dragon was Satan. And we, we kind of landed here, and this is where we're going to take the plane off tonight, of why Satan is given such a different description here than the typical Satan uh, we see in pictures and literature and paintings, which is typically a red-skinned a red fellow with a pitchfork in his hand and a nice triangular tail and uh, beautiful little horns, beady little eyes and long fangs. And that's the devil that is portrayed in most modern or ancient art. But when we come to this chapter, it, how many of you say this is distinctly different than the devil that's been drawn for us? It's a whole other ball game. Uh, but it, it goes back, as we did last week, it goes back to the prophecy of Daniel and picks up from Daniel that this is not just a reference to the actual being of Satan himself, but it is a sign of Satan and how he's going to work. And we landed on this, that this dragon is a political world power. And this is where we landed last week and we'll take off now. Let's look at those. Gave you this last week, but we're going to catch up with it again and talk about this dragon that is a political world power. How does it look for us today? Is this here today? And is there any pressure of what's going on do we see around us? And we're going to wrap it up. And my goal is to end tonight with you either seriously considering it or believing this that the book of Revelation is primarily for the Jew, to the Jew, to finish the promises given to the Jew so that the Jew Jesus can come to the Jewish nation Jerusalem and rule from Jerusalem as a Jew in a Jewish manner of a Jewish custom over all the rest of the nations of the world. And so a Jew from Jerusalem in a Jewish manner and a Jewish system of worship and a Jewish religion will rule the world and my opinion is that the book of Revelation is trying to push us to that the problem is uh, we like to figure out if I'm not a Jew where do I fit and where am I and where's America and where's the church and all this and I've tried to touch on all that so I'm gonna try to wrap that up tonight and make it a little clear here's the scope of this political power that we read last week We'll just let you fill in the blanks again. It will be worldwide. It will definitely be anti-God. It will be Jew-centric, meaning focused on the Jews. Much of what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Revelation is going to happen in the Middle East, in that promised land that we've been showing you. It will have a religious flair, meaning it won't be anti-religion. It will be anti-God. Uh, anti-religion means there's a bunch of gods we're good with it just not the one Jesus it will change laws and customs for global control so it'll be it'll be pushing for a global control through changing of laws and then the final one is it will be short-lived three and a half years so that's where we ended now let's just take this thought of and this is what I need you to land on this dragon that holds the spirit of Antichrist with it from which the one ruler will rise out of this political realm 
and will rule the world. We'll call him the Antichrist in the chapters to come. It will be a central figure, but a central figure that will be ruling over a political world power. Much like we would have a president ruling over the 50 states, uh, this will be a central figure who will be known as the Antichrist ruling over these different nations to govern the world. So there, what we would, by logic, have to say is there's still a few things that need to shift in our world for the majority of human beings to go, we're good with a global government. Uh, we're good with a global agenda. Some of the things that have had to have happened have happened. Uh, we've had to remove nationalism out of your thinking. In other words, if you think nationalistic, meaning America first, us first, let's take care of us, let's take care of our military, our veterans, our people. If you're not careful, that spirit of Antichrist comes in and says that's a racist uh, way to think. It's very narrow-minded. You need to think global. We need to care about the whole world. And so there comes this system in to where through our education systems and through our culture and through our social networks, we wind up today being probably more global-minded than we've ever been in the history of the world. Global-minded in the sense of Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, all of the social media connect us globally. Google connects you globally. UPS connects you globally. Amazon connects you globally. The news agencies give you global connections. So we can at least say in the history of humanity, it's the first time that I would know we have global connection. Uh, at, the, at the punch of a button, at the flip of a finger, I can be in the, another part of the world watching a live feed, a live stream. As people are in Japan on their cell phone, on Instagram, live feeding, I can watch a live feed if I'm following that person. And I have an understanding today in this generation, you know, maybe, and I say that 25 and under, uh, global thinking is, is nothing to them. Everything is globalized, and so now we have to go to global climate control, Mother Earth, so we have a common denominator now, and that's globalism to save the climate, to save Mother Earth. That's cool, and then global peace. We'll all work together to bring peace. So all of the things you've been seeing on the news, from the climate control to uh, peace agreements to uh, stopping wars and you know dictators and things like that is, is a spirit that's moving toward a unified globalist mindset. Uh, right now I still think we're okay that probably many Americans are like, yeah, I'm not going to let anybody rule us, we're America. But that's even shifting some. And we're shifting away from a very nationalistic American pride that you almost are pushed aside to even think pridefully about your nation. You need to think Mother Earth and global. That's intentional. So here's what we're going to find about this political world power that's ran by Satan. Here's a scripture. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge truth about Jesus, that person's not from God, and such a person in this label has the spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard is coming, and then this phrase... Indeed, it's already here. So though we would love to take this class and go, who is the Antichrist? Let's put our finger on him. Is it a male, a female? Will he come from the Middle East? Will he be a homosexual, a lesbian? What will they be? What, what nation will they come from? And we can just spend forever speculating. One thing we don't have to speculate, his spirit or its spirit is already here. 
It's working now. So all we would need to do now is go, well, what does this spirit look like? And if we could define what the spirit looks like, we may know how close we are to the one ruler coming up to really rule this thing as the figurehead. Not the spirit behind it, but the figurehead that will actually be connected to it, anti-Jesus. So let's see if we can do that. I say this, Second John 1, because many deceivers have gone out into the world, and here it comes. Now, he's going to define what it is for us. They deny that Jesus Christ came, I think if you're King James, New King James, maybe it's going to say in the flesh. Uh, New Living says in a real body. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver, and then it, then it even defines it for us, and is an antichrist. So although there's an antichrist that's going to be a central figure we're going to learn about that will control this global world political system in the end time, there's a spirit here that's working, but it works also in individual people. And through individual people, because it's a world political system that the enemy is working toward, it will show up primarily in politics. The laws that are passed, the things that we push forward, the things that a nation pushes forward. It won't just show up in Antichrist as just regular people because we've always been fleshly people and always could have been an opportunity for the devil to use us. But because it's a global political system... There will be people that rise up that are, small letter, an antichrist. Meaning they're doing the work that the devil wants to do even though it's not quite yet that devil that's working. So, and here's what it says they do. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. So if that's the thing that is specific antichrist and his spirit is already here then I would just logically need to say is what did the body of Jesus do for us? All right? Here's what the body of Jesus did for us. The physical body of Jesus, without, you know, preaching on it, it just a thought, not a message. The physical body of Jesus produced the following. The born-again soul, you must be born again. It produced the church, the birth of the church, and it produced the giving of the Spirit, the infilling of the Spirit. Those three things are three things that the body, the literal physical body of Jesus, when he came to earth, died and was put in a grave and rose up, the physical body of Jesus produced this seed. And remember, remember what the devil hates from Genesis. He cannot stand the seed. He's going to come for the soul. So this was the seed of the body of Christ. Uh, born again, the church, and the infilling of the Spirit. So, logic deduction, what is the spirit of Antichrist going to hate? Thank you. Born again people, he's going to hate the church, and he's going to hate anything to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. But he's got, watch now, he's got to work this in a way that it stays religious, but it's none of this. So it's going to be this in religion, but it's not going to be this in effect. It's going to be this in thought. It's going to be this in speculation, but it will not be this in life change that would produce a living Christ that's still here. So that's what he's working for. And the spirit of Antichrist will work ceaselessly 
against all three, and here's how. Remember, it's a political agenda. He will work against the born-again soul, the church, and the infilling of the Spirit through politics and government. He will move an entire globe to be against born-again, an entire globe to be against the church, an entire globe to be against the infilling of the Holy Spirit. He's doing a pretty good job now. <laughs> there are many governments that will not let Christianity or churches meet at all. They behead Christians. They kill Christians. We're just a little spoiled in America. We don't have to deal with that. He's working greatly in religious circles as that there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but we could probably check the box that they've never really been born again, though they say all the right words. And they go to a church where they give their money, but they're probably truly not the church. And so that's why they'll stand before God and go, we did all these religious things. And Jesus goes, yeah, thanks, but I don't even know who you are. And then there is plenty of religious people who don't believe in power. As long as we have programs, as long as we stay busy, as long as we help the community, we're good people. And so the devil begins to infiltrate this in a way that becomes socially and religiously acceptable. He's smart enough to know, especially in America, that's such a strong, powerful nation, that to pull this off, I've got to do it in a slow and methodical way. Here's Romans 6, talking about born again. And you just, in your mind, answer, do you believe that the devil, Lucifer, working as a dragon over politics has not begun to spread through a governmental mind thinking over the mind of people to touch born again because here's what we deal with today. Um, yeah, it's okay to love Jesus and still keep living like you're living. Just be you. Do you. But the Bible says you can't do you. That you's dead. you you got to be a new you and it's called a born again you. And this lie that we're all just sinners, we're in love with Jesus, we all sin, is a lie. According to what the body of Jesus did, sin has no power over you. So this theological belief that filters through Christianity today, that I'm just a sinner, I love Jesus, he puts up with me, he knows my faults, don't judge me, we're all sinners, is a lie. We're not all sinners. If we're all sinners, Jesus died for nothing. We used to be a sinner, and neither am I an old sinner saved by grace. I am not even an old sinner anymore. I am a brand new, 100%, born again, new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things are new, and my earthly name is still Mark, but my heavenly name, he will write up on my forehead and give me a brand new name. I don't know what that name will be. I hope it's something Mexican, like, yeah, <laughs> here's my son. We call him Chimichanga. I don't know. I don't know what my new name is, but I hope it's cool. <laughs> so, so the spirit of Antichrist is going to work in a religious way so that people are religious but, but don't ever change. So churches will fill up with people who are religious, but they never change. The same sins they've been dealing with for years, they just keep dealing with. The second thing he's going to touch is the church. So that if I'm delayed, 1 Timothy 3, you'll know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God and then defines the church for us. The church is the church of the living God and it's the pillar and it's the foundation of truth. 
So what I, what I have to do is I have to remove the church being the foundation of truth. We're just dumb people. We're, we're you know, very uh, narrow-minded people. You can't trust the church. The Bible calls the church the pillar of the truth. Now what happens is when shepherds start leading flocks but won't speak truth because we'll lose people, we'll lose citywide influence if we tell people the truth so we water it down and just kind of you know throw it out there kind of sloppy I, I don't you know I don't have to answer for those people but I think the whole thing is truth just hurts and it's supposed to sting and it's supposed to cut us to the heart because the church is the pillar of truth so what happens when the church is the pillar of truth if you're the devil just to show the spirit of antichrist is working pretty well you just get the entire church so divided that we can't even land on hardly any truth. You know, I mean, we can't even agree on Republican, Democrat, abortion. Not, I mean, we just can't agree on divorce. We can't agree on what Bible to use. Uh, can women preach? Can they wear makeup? We, you know, we're so divided. How could we, who in their right mind thinks that they are the pillar and the ground of truth? And the answer is it's the Catholic Church. They literally stand on their own denomination that they are the pillar of truth. And the Pope sets the truth. If you don't like what the Pope says, tough. He sets the truth. So the Catholic Church is pretty much operating in a way that they seemingly are the foundation of truth. I'm not saying it's right truth, but the way they parse it out. But whatever the Pope says, we just do because he's the Pope, he's the vicar of Christ, and therefore shut up because he's right. But in our kind of church, if somebody speaks truth and you don't like it, you just leave. I'll just go down the street because I didn't like your truth. I need to find a church that fits my truth. And so really the church just quits being the foundation of truth. And so he gets us there too. The third is power. How will the dragon come against the power of God? Second Timothy 3, 5, they'll act religious, but they reject the power which makes them godly. Just stay away from those people. Uh, that's a powerful thought. I mean, it sounds really rude to... I'm not even to hang out with people who don't display the power of God. And yet we're, as Christians, filled with people who act religious, but there is no life change at all. There is no power. Every single Sunday, I'm sure, across the globe, there's churches that just pack it out. But we would wonder, is any power at all? I mean, is there any life-changing thing? I even pray that here. I don't want to be religious. I really want God to show up, and I have to judge my own self on that as well. So here's the thing that now we're going to deal with. This political world power. Some people believe the book of Revelation has already happened. None of this is going to happen. You just read it. It's a historical book. Other people believe that everything in the book of Revelation is to the future. Both teams have a really good argument. I land on the team that says it's future and not past, but to be fair to everybody... I'll give you this when it's in your worksheet. There is a theological belief out there that interprets, this is just my words, you can read it off the screen and fill in the blank. My words would be that the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, anything prophetic in the Bible is not prophetic. It's all finished. It's all historical. This thing we call the Bible, there's nothing future in it at all. Everything in it is past. And so that's how we have to deal with it. 
Uh, I'm okay with that. I mean, it doesn't bother me. I think they're wrong, but it doesn't bother me. I, because there's just a lot of stuff that I just check one box and go, well, if, if this is past and it's all already happened, I'd like to know where my grandmama and granddaddy are because they've not been raised from the dead and they're still in the grave. And if I, I, I don't see Satan locked away. So if he's not locked away and I see he'll be locked away for a thousand years, uh, then obviously the rest of the book still needs to be finished. Just for the very fact that if I ask you, do you believe the devil's working right now, and you say yes, that tells me that the book is not finished yet because he's done with by the end of the book. And he's forever thrown in the lake of fire to torment you no more. So the way we could just answer this is, do you see the work of the devil on our planet today? And if our answer would be, I do, in these ways then we would say then it's a future book and not a past. This is what I believe. Uh, futurism is what it would be called. And it's a, a view, eschatological is just a big word for the end of the world, the end time, that the book of Revelation, which is what I've been teaching you, the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, Micah, uh, many of these prophets that are kind of lost because we don't understand what they're saying, we don't read them because they're just tiny books of the Old Testament that make zero sense. But my belief is almost every minor prophet and major prophet you read in the Old Testament is prophesying to the future. Not just Jesus alone, but to that which will come. And in these ways, a literal future, a physical, apocalyptic, and a global context to all of it. So the Bible that, in my opinion, the Bible that we hold isn't just a history book. But it is the mind of God to how the end of the world will play out. And God in his graciousness gave it to us in a book called Revelation so we would not be called unaware. The problem is we just have to study it as we said in lesson one. And that if we do just read it we're blessed because of it because it tells us what the end is like. Here's a scripture Revelation 4. Revelation 12 verse 4. Let's jump in now and go back to our chapter. And I just want to read Revelation 4 and teach the rest of it to you to pull it out to where we can make some sense out of this chapter. All right. And the woman, there's the nation Israel, fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place for her for 1260 days. We're going to talk about that place in a minute. Where is that place? Verse 7, then there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. Now, if we take the view that Revelation is future, coming, and not only past, this moment of being forced out of heaven would have to be at the beginning of time when Lucifer was kicked out of heaven the first time. And this seems to be that he's kicked out of heaven again, like two kicked out of heaven. I kicked you out the first time, and I'm going to kick you out the second time. And so I just want to know, is Satan kicked out once in the beginning of all time before Adam and Eve, and then he's just been here wreaking hell and havoc? Or has Satan been kicked out in rebellion once, but now he's going to be kicked out once and for all in the end, in a future, and that's what I believe. I believe there's coming, and I'll teach you this in a minute, there's coming another moment of time in the future where God the Father in his timing of eternity will say to Satan, enough is enough, and he will mark an end moment, 
And when he marks the end moment, he kicks Lucifer out of heaven for good. And war ensues and the devil gets very desperate because now for a moment he understands my time is very short. And he doesn't have a lot of time left. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. The great dragon, there's that political world power. That ancient serpent called the devil ruled by Satan. The one deceiving the whole world, there's that political government, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last. Salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. Now here's what gets really interesting of why I believe this tossing out of the devil is a second tossing out of heaven and not the first tossing out. The first tossing out is before Genesis 1-2. The devil's booted out. You tried to overcome. I judged your planet. I judged your world. I created a new world with Adam and Eve. You've been ticked at them the whole time. And there's been this war between God, the seed of woman, and life here on this earth. Listen to this, it's it's interesting. For the accuser, that's the devil, of our brothers has been thrown down to the earth. I don't believe this is his first time. The one who accuses them before our God day and night, and they've defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. In other words, this insinuates that there is a finality to what happens here. It is done with. It's at last. There's nothing. And the way we're going to define it is this devil that has spent his time accusing humans to God is cast down one final time. And Now watch. When he's cast down this final time in the verses to come, he gets really ticked and he begins to just violently, is the best he can to wreak hell and havoc in his final days on the earth. Now, here's the interesting thing that I don't know how much it's taught but it is an interesting subject of the devil in relationship to God after he's been kicked out when Lucifer rebelled in the beginning of time against God and Lucifer the angel was cast out of heaven I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven And he was booted out. According to scripture, he becomes the prince of the power of the air. He is judged so that the earthly realm is no longer his realm anymore. This is Genesis 1, 1, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 2. His world is uh, totally annihilated and God begins to call up another earth seven days, literal seven, and Adam and Eve and then insert the snake to be like, no dude, I'm going to get my earth back. And Lucifer gets his earth back. Through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, Lucifer, the world he once ruled over, he gets it back and becomes ruler again. That's the whole of the gospel of why Jesus is coming. There's this serpent, Satan, devil, who's still an angel. Please get out of your mind the pitchfork with little horns and these fang teeth. He is a most gorgeous angel, according to Isaiah, that has ever been created. He's the sum of all beauty, the sum of all wisdom. And in my opinion of what I've studied, nothing ever compared to Lucifer in creation. 
He was at the top rung. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Lucifer was the pinnacle of God's creation until Adam and Eve came along. Because the thing that made Adam and Eve so uniquely hated by Lucifer is that they trumped him in the sense of not necessarily authority, but in the sense of who they were. They were the image of God in the nature of God, which is what he wanted anyway. You remember his rebellion, I want to be God. And this is revelation, he still wants to be God. He's never ceased this thing. That's why he's called Antichrist. That's why he's trying to rule a world through a global power. He wants to be God. He wants people to call him God. Well, here's what's interesting about it. I wish I knew all the depth of it. It's a different teaching entirely. The book of Job. The book of Job, anybody who's suffering loves this book. It's like, oh, I just love Job. Like God just threw Job under the bus and Oh, we just suffer and dying. Let's go read Job. Job makes us feel better. But without an understanding of what's going on in Job, you misinterpret the whole book. Because what's going on in Job is that the accuser of the brethren, though cast out of heaven because of rebellion, still in a weird way because he's one of God's created beings, still goes up to heaven to chit-chat, which is weird. And so he shows up in heaven as one of the members of the heavenly court. And he came to present himself before the Lord and the accuser, Satan, showed up. So here's Lucifer, judged in rebellion, decides, I think I'm going to go back up there where dad was. I'm going to go hang out with the heavenly angels, just check out what's going on. He shows up up there and, and God, only that could chit-chat with him, says, well, where have you come from? And he said, well, I have come. I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. So know this about Lucifer that's real interesting in this Revelation 12. From the time he's been kicked out until Revelation 12, he has had an access to heaven to patrol the earth, to see who he can devour, and then to take that before the Lord and accuse that believer before the Lord so that the Lord will have to judge that believer because Lucifer knows God cannot lie. So Lucifer appears before the court to say, Miss Jennifer needs to be put to death because she has sinned. He's accusing Jennifer before the Father. He accuses Jennifer before the Father. And as he accuses her before the Father, the Father says there's one that makes intercession for Jennifer who's already been punished and who's already been dead. And so Lucifer loses the battle because Jennifer overcomes him by the blood of the Lamb. Now this is my opinion, has been going on for millennia. And in Revelation 12, if you read on in Job, he appears a couple more times to the Lord to do the same thing, to incite God and to accuse him. But in Revelation 12, it says, and I'll read it again, he was thrown down at last. The accuser is finally done with. He will accuse them before God no more. God finally says, enough is enough. You will not accuse him. And when he's kicked out of heaven this time, and he's kicked out the second time, things escalate toward the end where he's judged and thrown into a pit. So if he's still here working, 
Uh, he hadn't been quite thrown out of this heavenly court yet. He's still there to accuse us. Here's the thought behind that. I know that may have been rambling, but I tried to ramble my brain into this beautiful sentence. All right. The devil was thrown out of heaven at the judgment of his original rebellion, but he still maintained some sort of access to the heavenly court. That's Job. We see that. Where he would accuse humans before God day and night. That's Revelation 12. But in Revelation 12, the devil is cast to the earth. And here's your blanks. One last time. And he no longer has access to the heavenly court. Nor can he accuse God's people anymore. Now the moment he realizes. If you, were, you, know, if you go back to a moment in time. In Jesus' earthly ministry. He's walking along the road. He bumps into a demon. Remember what the demon says to him. The demon says, if you come to torment me before what? Before my time. So even the demons know that there is an end point where they are going to be judged in a final way. And they even say to Jesus, this is not the time yet. They knew that. That's how weird this is. They knew that this moment that I bumped into him is not my time from judgment. Have you come before my time? Because their time is Revelation 12 when they're finally kicked out and God's done with it and God starts just wiping his hands like, here we go. We're ending the whole plan. We're going to finish the devil's kingdom. We're going to finish what I said to the Jews. We're going to finish what I said to the Gentiles. So the moment Lucifer is kicked out of heaven finally one last time, we start seeing the rest of the book as we read through it. You're going to start see things finishing quickly. Things are going to rapidly begin to transpire in the next three and a half years. Here's Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice, but terror will come on the earth and the sea for the devil. See, when he's kicked out, here's what happens. The devil comes down to you in great anger, knowing he has but a little time. King James, New King James, uses the word short there. Uh, it's about the same translation in the New Living little time, but it means minuscule. It means uh, you know, microscopic. It doesn't mean two, three thousand years. It means quick. Uh, so much so quick that if we look at the seven years we're talking about, at this juncture when he's kicked out, there's about three and a half years worth of time left before the kingdom of Lucifer is totally done, which is going to be chapter 13 on through the rest of Revelation. He comes down angry, verse 14. When the devil, the dragon, realized that he had been thrown down to earth, what does he do? This is where I really want to focus on this teaching that the church is still here. I believe, according to what the Bible teaches, if we look at Revelation as the future, when he's ticked off, who does he pursue? The woman. He's not pursuing the church. He's been coming after us for centuries. But now he's not coming after the church. And we know the church would be the church because it shows up in Revelations 1, 2, and 3. And he talks about that there's the spirit of Satan is in here in the synagogue. And, but when he's kicked out this time, he's not coming after the church. My point would be logically why? Because the church is in heaven with the Father and not on the earth. So when he's kicked out of the earth, he does only what he knows to do. I'm going to pursue the nation Israel and I'm going to murder all of God's kids. I'm killing all of them. 
We were talking at lunch today about World War II and the, the angst of the deceptive demonic thing that came into Hitler in the Jewish Nazi realm that just annihilated six million Jews, throwing babies alive in a furnace to burn their bodies, piling them up high. We look at that today and think, oh, okay, that was only like 80 years ago. And yet here we sit with there's going to be a, an extreme hatred of Jewish people. Extremely. He's going to come after them and pursue them. Here's the next verse. This may make some sense to you. Matthew chapter 24, which is the end time, kind of when will all these events happen. Here's the pro This is just, again, Mark's opinion. One of the problems with understanding all the prophecies in especially the gospel of Matthew about the end time is we try to interpret it from the church's perspective. Looking back into it, going, well, the church. and the, You have to understand, when Jesus teaches this, he teaches it to a group of Jews who have zero understanding of the church because there is no church. They wouldn't even know what the church was if he said the church because the church has never even been birthed yet. So as he's talking about the end of the world, he's talking to Jewish people who are trying in a Jewish way to understand when the Jewish Messiah will show up and rule a Jewish world. And this is what he says there. The day is coming when you'll see what Daniel, the prophet, spoke about. The sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. That's in Jerusalem in the temple. We saw that a few weeks ago, that mosque that's sitting on the Temple Mount. Reader, pay attention. In other words, that was an important sentence. We should have read it again. Then those in Judea, where is Judea? It's in Israel. It doesn't say then those in South America, North America, Canada. Those in Judea must flee to the hills. And a person out on the deck of a roof must not go down the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in the winter or when? Yeah, on a Sabbath. That doesn't really even mean anything to any Jewish or Gentile mind. We don't really even worry about the Sabbath as Gentiles. A very Jewish thing. For there will be great anguish that at any time since the world began and never will be so great again. In fact, <laughs> this is Jesus... Unless the time of calamity was shortened, not a single person will survive. That's how ticked and angry and hateful the devil's going to be. He's going to attempt to annihilate every human on the planet. He's going to go after the Jew. He's going to go after the Gentile. He's going to destroy everything he's destroyed. Why? Because he's the destroyer. Back to Revelation 12. 13 and 14, the dragon realized he had been thrown to the earth. He pursued the woman who had been given birth to the male child, but she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly, listen, here's that word, to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she, the nation Israel, would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and a half time. My belief is this isn't talking about Gentiles or Christians that, you know, if, for those that don't believe in the rapture, that God's going to just care for us and protect us kind of in a, just a random way. This is a very specific way he's going to protect them, not a random way. He's going to protect them in a place that's been prepared. 
So even if we do believe mid-trib, post-trib, we need to find out where this place is and get there because that's where he's going to protect them. And then if it makes you feel any better, he's not going to protect Gentiles there. He's only going to protect Jews there. So you need to change your nationality or you're not going to get in the place. So he's specifically going to protect a Jewish remnant. I believe the 144,000, they'll come back with him. We'll leave that for another time. So here it is. To what do the wings of an eagle refer? He said, I will protect them and lead them out on the wings of an eagle. And this probably is one of the most, I won't say the most, but definitely a big question I get a lot. Is this America? And I'll tell you why. Because... Only John could have prophesied the wings of an eagle. And that God is going to use America. And America is going to rush in and be the savior of the Jewish nation. Just like very much we did with Hitler when he was coming. America rose to the occasion, the wings of an eagle. And we helped annihilate Hitler off the planet. It sounds romantic, especially if you're an American. Mark's opinion. And I'm going to go redneck. We ain't nowhere in the Bible. I hope you feel romantic with it. God does not need America to save the Jews. We may have tried to do it before, but the one thing America couldn't do is end the spirit of Antichrist and stop what Satan is going to continue to do. And America will never be able to stop it. I'll tell you why. Because we're running hard after the agenda of the Antichrist. We're not trying to save Israel. We're trying to become his anti-Christ nation as quickly as we can. So that ought to answer it too. We're not going to be the savior. We're tanking about as fast as you can tank. But let's see who it would be. Who are the wings of an eagle? To understand who it would be, we've got to do a left-hand turn to the book of Exodus. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob and announce it to the descendants of Israel. Here's God talking about himself, which is always interesting. Anytime God talks about himself, of himself, and defines himself, read it. This is what he says of himself. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how what? I carried you on eagles' wings. And I did what? I brought you to myself. When John sees the, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to bear you on the wings of weagles. Weagles? That felt good. The, the Lord, the Lord shall bear thee on the wings of weagles. I like that. I'm going to make a t-shirt. I've been born on the wings of weagles. I was thinking about cheese dip, I guess. All right. Uh, he says, I'll, I'll carry you on the wings, uh, the, the wings of eagles. Just move on. Just move on. Yeah, thanks, Mom. You got it, right? I'll sh shut up move on. Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 2, if you just know how to study and dig it out, will tell you where God is going to lead these people. Nothing about God is by chance. Nothing about Him is speculative. What He wants you to know, He tells you. And then He just expects you to study to find it. And the beautiful prophet Micah that we never read because it just doesn't make sense, tells us 
Where will this place be where God will lead them out to protect them? Someday, O Israel, I will gather you. I will gather the remnant who are left. I will bring you together again, and then this phrase, like sheep in a pen. Like a flock in its pasture, yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Your leader will break out and lead you out of exile, out through the gates of the enemy cities, back to your own land. Your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. This phrase, a sheep in a pen, tells us it's the word uh, Basra. If you're a King James reader, it just gives you the word Basra, but it doesn't make sense to us when we read it, so... Newer versions just translate sheep pen. Uh, sheep pen was the word Basra in the Hebrew, and it meant an enclosed fold, sheepfold, a fortified place of safety. So Micah prophesies, here's what's strange, that God has prepared a place already that he will take a remnant of the Jews and he will hide them away so that Satan cannot kill them in his rage because God has promised that the Jew would not be annihilated so he has to fulfill his promise so he hides them away in a place called Batsra. Uh, this is the King James. I just gave it to you so you could see that this is how it reads. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. Here's the scripture in Isaiah. The sinners in Jerusalem, in other words, those that don't have not been made righteous and believe in what's going on, the 144,000, who can live in this devouring fire, they cry. It says this, those are the honest and fair who refuse to profit by fraud, who stay away from bribes, who refuse to listen to those who plot murder, who shut their eyes to all enticement to do wrong. These are the ones who will dwell on high. Watch, this is where he prophesies it. The rocks and the mountains will be their fortress. God is going to hide this remnant of Jews away in a rock mountain to protect them in a place where the enemy, Lucifer, the political world power, will not be able to get to them. Uh, not because he doesn't want to, but because God has prepared the place and he won't be allowed to. Because remember what God said, if I don't stop it, he'll kill them all. And I've made a promise that the Jews, there will always be a remnant. Here's the beautiful thing is, this place is still here today. The city of Batsra is in uh, the very place that I showed you when I gave you the promised land. So the promised land that was given to Abraham in that promise that we've seen in these maps... The flashing X is where the city of Batsra is. And God says, what I'm going to do when this world power comes and this world leader comes and he begins to rule the world and Lucifer becomes so angry that he begins to generate, to murder and annihilate my people, I'm going to gather a remnant of them myself and I'm going to pull them into a sheepfold called Batsra. And I will shepherd them and watch over them and the enemy will not be able to touch them. What the beautiful thing is going to happen is Jesus is going to come down. At the, we'll get to it. He'll come down and grab this group of people and take them to the Mount of Olives when he annihilates the enemy. These people will be standing on the Mount of Olives with him as his children. 
Here's the beautiful thing for those of you that love the Indiana Jones movie. Who knew it was a prophecy? This is Botsra. It's the place in the Indiana Jones movie where he goes to find the cup of the Lord. Uh, Botsra is a real place. Uh, you may remember how it looked in the Indiana Jones movie when they're riding the horses through the little alleyway and they come into this big temple. Well, this is called the sanctuary. It is the temple that resides in Botsra, the city of Petra. And this is where God prophesies his people are going to be held up. He's going to put them inside this rock and hold them there. And what's really interesting is there is really no way to get in except through what is called the Outseek. It is a canyon. Uh, you remember the story, the, maybe the movie would be better. They're riding the horses through the canyon uh, because it is a very sealed off place. And God is going to seal those Jews in, into this city that it was prophesied by Micah in the city of Botsra, and this is going to be his sheep pen. He's going to wall them in, and you can see several hundred foot walls, uh, just high rocks. God is going to wall his people in so that the enemy cannot get to them. Again, you may say, well, why wouldn't they use airplanes uh, and all of that? I'm going to go back to what I've been teaching all along. Most of that's been annihilated through earthquakes, rivers turning to blood, through all the things that have been happening globally and catastrophically. By the time we, this is an opinion, by the time we get to this point, it'll pretty much be old-time warfare, hand-to-hand -hand combat. Because tanks, planes won't be able to fly. You remember all the boils and sores that are breaking out. Demons are everywhere. So all that's still going on while God is pulling his people here into this city of Botsra. And then guess what happens? Devil gets ticked again. So the dragon tried to drown the woman. Where is the woman hidden? At Botsra. He's going to try to drown her with a flood of water that will flow from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth, swallowing the river that gushed out of the mouth of the dragon. If you Google Earth it, and you Google Earth Botsra and Petra, there is a dam that sits up above it that it was put there purposely so that the city of Petra and Basra would not flood during heavy rains. This is the valley that the water comes gushing down when it floods to literally flood out Petra and flood everybody there and kill them all. You can see how narrow it is. So all the rains that come when the floodgates open up, remember what Lucifer remembers. The floodgates opened up and destroyed his entire kingdom in Genesis 6. So he already has in his mentality, if you want to destroy people, you destroy them with a flood. The beautiful thing about Botsra, it's, it's in the middle of this canyon, and that canyon is known to flood. If the dam breaks, if it ever opens up, it'll flood out the whole canyon. Here's some pictures of it. Uh, you can see on the left is dry, and you can see on the right the heavy rains that start coming in to flood the whole canyon. So when we read that the enemy is going to come in like a flood to destroy all of God's people, I literally believe somehow in some government thing they're going to cause a flood to come and think, well, if they're in the Petra, let's just flood them out and kill them all. Now, whether they break the dam, whether it, the enemy begins to mess with weather like he does now and just flood the area and all the water that rains in that area comes down. There's even signs outside of here that say careful flood zone, flood warning. 
So it's like Micah was prophesying something that's already getting ready to happen even now. And here's a group of people caught in a rainstorm, a small one, who are already trying to navigate how do we at least just get out, although it's not very deep, right? But it just shows you how quickly a rainstorm can come. And you really don't have anywhere to go if it does come because it's too narrow and it's just going to flood in and kill everybody out. You can see them standing on the rocks to try to get away from it. And the dragon was angry at the woman, of course. Declared war against the rest. And we're going to end here. He declares war. The moment Lucifer realizes, I cannot get to these people because God has hid them away. Who does he come after next? The rest of her children. Now, for those of us that don't want to get raptured, this is kind of what we hold on. This must be us. These are all the Christians because it's the rest of her children, the people who keep the commandments, and then those that maintain their testimony for Jesus. So obviously we're still here is the argument. I don't like the argument, but I'll give to it that this is talked about as being why the church is still here because who would maintain a testimony of Jesus? So the dragon took his stand. We'll pick this up next week on the shore. Let's look at the thought. He comes after the woman... Those are the Jews that believe. They become the Jews that see Jesus as their Messiah. They've missed it. I believe the 144,000, they're protected at Petra. The rest of her children are unbelieving Jews, the ones that do not want anything to do with the Messiah, the Jews that still don't believe, but they keep God's commandments. In other words, they're still doing the law. They're still sacrificing things. They're still... Uh, you know, they've seen the sacrifices that have been made through the Temple Mount. And then believing Gentiles, those who through the witnessing of the two witnesses and the 144,000 come to believe in Jesus. Even though they're not the church, they've not been raptured, but these are the people, the nations that were left behind, they come to believe in Jesus. Through the witnessing, through seeing what's going on. So this is the rest of her children. So once he realizes he can't get the believing Jews, he turns himself to annihilate all the remaining Jews and he turns on all the Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the best way I can give it to you if you remember this uh, from like lesson three when we talked about the church, the Jew, and the Gentile. God is going to finish all of them. Remember we talked about being finished. God finishes the church when the church is raptured and its earthly witness is finished. But he still has Jews and Gentiles left. The segment of believing Jews are kept at Petra. The unbelieving Jews are keeping his commandments and they're starting to be annihilated and murdered left and right as the Antichrist begins to take over the city of Jerusalem. All the Gentile nations that are left, the people that weren't the church, the millions of people on the planet that have survived, some will believe in Jesus. Some will profess faith in Him. Those are those that have the testimony of Jesus. They come to faith in Jesus after the rapture of the church. And those are the ones that are beheaded for their faith in Christ. If they do not denounce Christ, the Antichrist beheads them and kills them. And their only way to get life now is to be beheaded. So that's the price they pay. It, and the way it lends itself in Revelation is that everybody almost who believes is beheaded. 
So that would be kind of weird that everybody in here is going to get your head chopped off. But I believe the church is raptured because God is... Just like he took the Jews to Petra, he takes the body of himself to himself. We're in heaven. Believing Jews are in Petra. And then the enemy begins to come and those that are beheaded uh, for the faith of Jesus Christ will be resurrected at that final resurrection. So that's Revelation chapter 12. I hope that helped you. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.